Welcome to the very first Women's Roundtable. Today, the topic of discussion is going to be what it's like to be women authors as well as outspoken political writers. We're going to be discussing the specific challenges female authors face as well as feedback, positive and negative, that we get when we write about politics and feminism. And my guests today are Lorraine Devin Wilkie and my mom, Ann Werner. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce each each one of my guests, and they're going to tell you um, what their books are, what the, anything that they're writing currently, and their websites. So we're going to start with you, Lorraine. Welcome to the show, and tell us about yourself. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here, Kimberly. We share a lot online, and I always find your perspective on things to be very bracing, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, well, I'm actually up in Seattle uh, to do my very first book to, uh, book event for my book tour for my book that just got pub yesterday, which is called The Alchemy of Noise. And it's a novel that's focused on uh, an interracial couple and what they have to deal with through the process of simple everyday life and how that impacts both of them individually together, their families and friends. And it deals a lot with uh, white privilege, uh, bias. Bias, uh, the law enforcement system, the disparate uh, ways that things hit people depending on what color skin that they have. And it's been a really interesting journey because, as I'm sure many people know, there's uh, a lot of debate about whether white writers can include black characters in their books. And it was really important to me as a white writer doing that to really get that right, to tell the story from the point of view of both the characters, black and white, and infuse it with uh, real authenticity and sensitivity. And so I used a lot of sensitivity readers and did a lot of research and interviews. And because it does deal with the contemporary current issues of racial disparity in this country that are sadly incredibly resonant today. Hmm. Um, so that's my book. I have two previous books. Uh, that book came out yesterday through She Writes Press. I have two previous books that I self-published. One is called, called uh, After the Sucker Punch, and the second one's called Hysterical Love. You can get them all on Amazon and everywhere where books are sold. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want any information about me at all, you can go to my website at LorraineDevinWilkie.com. And I also have a blog that uh, is called RockPaperMusic.com that covers a lot of creative things, but also a lot of political things, too. It's kind of my personal diary on this whole journey of life that we're on. And um, for about seven years, I worked with HuffPost and wrote a lot of op-eds and social commentary pieces, as well as other websites. And so I've kind of covered the gamut. And, um, you know, that's the journey. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. So that's my spiel. Awesome. That's that's an impressive resume. Um, all right, Anne, Mom, go yeah. for it. <laughs> well, uh, right now I am currently working on a novel entitled The Melt. Um, and basically it starts out as a climate change story, but it is a dystopian novel. It takes um, the reader... I'd say probably the first half of the book deals with a uh, global calamity of a virus that uh, decimates uh, the Earth's population. Um, it, it actually kills 95% of the people on Earth. Um, what I'm doing with this story is it's, uh, it starts out with um, my two characters, Rena and Ethan Hampton, and um, they survive this by locking themselves into a... Uh, bomb shelter, and then when they come out, it is time to pick up the pieces and go on. 
And it's their story about how they um, get into a, a, a settlement and start to, you know, just start over again in a world that is bereft of everything that we take advantage of. And what I'm trying to do with this story, um, I want to make it kind of a microcosm of what is happening today. So while everything goes along surprisingly well when they come out of the shelter and find this community of people, pretty soon there's a fly in the ointment. And um, I'm using it to to highlight the divisions in our society today and the danger, the dangers that that we face with those divisions. Hmm. So um, I'm in, you know, I'm 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 ending, uh, I'm coming up to the end of the first because I want to make this a series of books, um, at least three, um, and I really don't know where it's going to go and how far into the future I'm going to go with it. But uh, it's a lot of fun to write, and it does. It's going to have a lot of social commentary, but uh, like the other things that I write, because I'm very much into fiction, and especially in, uh, I like thrillers, so there is that kind of uh, aspect to it. So um, even though I write what I like to refer to as escapist fiction, uh, there is a lot of commentary in what I write. It's just not so much in your face. Although I have to say, uh, the melt. Is probably the most in-your-face uh, that I've ever written. Um, my other stories, um, I know Kimberly's favorite is um, a novel called Crazy, which is about a satanic serial killer. That was fun because this is how I take out all my aggressions. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also have another called Dreams and Nightmares, uh, and that is a story of a writer who has just made it and a career criminal uh, these are two separate storylines that go along and go along, and you know somehow they're going to converge, and eventually they do. Um, my favorite character, again, was the villain, because I just loved my villain, who was Albert <laughs> Uh and I, and I wrote, you know, and it's, it's interesting, because Lorraine was talking about talking, uh, writing uh, the point of a view of, uh, of, a, of a different race, Mm -hmm. um, I'm writing Albert from the point of view from a man, and he is a bad mofo. Mm -hmm. And he's a lot of fun to write. Um, yeah, yeah and he, I, he was gross. Oh, he was gross. <laughs> <laughs> she helped him to be grosser. I, she, she yes. A wonderful little toenail thing in there. Um, <laughs> and then um, my other novel is a ghost story called Cooper's Grove, uh, which is kind of a departure from the other two because it doesn't have – quite the thriller aspect, although there is a horror aspect. Um, what I weave through all of my stories is um, a strong woman, uh, because even though in Cooper's Grove she's a much softer character, she is a very strong woman uh, because of the things that she had to put up with uh, during a marriage that was very ill-fated, and her former husband winds up being the villain um, and he is the ghost. So I did a little bit of a, a, a switch on a ghost story for that. Um, I've also got a couple of short stories. One's called A View from the Meadow. Uh, the other is called a, The Chemtrail Conspiracy, which is also written from a, uh, for men, okay, because the characters in it are all, all men. Hmm. Um, so again, this is, you know, it's not, not a girly kind of a story, but I'm not a girly kind of a woman, so... <laughs> 
That's and fun. where where can they find where can everybody I find your books? Find everything on Amazon. Uh, right now, everything is pretty much exclusive on Amazon, except for the paperbacks, which you can get at any any online booksellers. The only um, the only uh, things that are not available on in paperback are the short stories "A View from a Meadow" and "The Chemtrail Conspiracy." And then I also have another um, ebook called Three to Thrill," which is a compendium of crazy Cooper's Grove and uh, dreams and nightmares, and that's only available as a as a Kindle. So those are my books. Cool. Well, and then mine, um, the books that I've written, two of them actually I did with my mom, Ann Werner. We did, uh, first book we did was a compilation of stories from different people about how they lost their virginity called The Virgin Diaries. And there was, I think there was how many, 72? I think it's 72 stories. And we tried to split it evenly between men and women. There's six um, stories with gay people telling their experiences. And I would like to add that we would have liked to get more, but that's what we got. We put the word out. And this was prior to um, Facebook and Twitter. So we just actually collected stories from people we knew. And we, we went to different online, um, you know, I think we went to Craigslist and, and got people to volunteer their their stories there. And, and basically, it was just, you know, people explaining what it felt like. I, I really wanted to focus on the feelings associated with it, as opposed to the actual sexual act, because if you ask people, um, you know, what what was it like when you lost your virginity, people would say, oh, my story was so boring. But it wasn't boring um, when they answered all of my questions, which started from, you know, did you ever get any advice from your family? And, you know, what about, uh, you know, a priest or a rabbi? And then I asked very specific questions dealing with the feelings. I mean, yes, we did cover physicality, but mostly it was about the feelings and how they felt before, during and after. What were their expectations? Were they excited? Blah, blah, blah. So we did that one. And that was kind of like the launch into my whole social media feminism thing, because I was online pushing that book. Um, when I started to become an, an activist for women, I wrote, in fact, we were trying to figure out a way to get Rush Limbaugh to attack us because he, <laughs> he, he had just attacked Sandra Fluke. And um, she had stood up in, in front of Congress and she was asking them to um, to make it a law or to get however, however she phrased it, just to get uh, colleges to... Um, I think, put birth control on their insurance plans. And she specified a friend that had an ovarian cyst. And so, of course, Rush Limbaugh called her a slut for three days in a row. Right. And, um, you know, so I wrote an open letter to Rush Limbaugh from a liberal slut on my personal blog. And that kind of launched me into political writing. And so then we we also did a book called um, Ain't, no Sh- Ain't No Sunshine, uh, men reveal the pain of heartbreak, and that was also kind of a departure for us because we interviewed men on what it's like to go through pain, whether it was a heartbreak or loss of a relationship. And it was a really interesting book because uh, a lot of times women assume men have it easier during a breakup, and I think it's actually the opposite. And this book proved us right. And the reason why is because men are told that they're not supposed to be emotional and they have to suck up their feelings, where women get to explore their emotions and talk about it with their friends. Um, So then I wrote American Woman, The Pole Dance, Women in Voting. And that was a little bit of a combination of just talking about the Equal Rights Amendment, women's rights, my activism online and and when I've given speeches and feminism and, of course, the importance of voting. 
Um, and then, then I wrote a fiction book. This is my last book. It's called Peyton's Choice. It was released in 2015, and it focuses on a teenage girl who's 17 years old, and she meets the love of her, well, the love of her life for that time as a teenage girl. And he's this wonderful, good-looking guy. It actually based him on this um, this guy that I had a huge crush on in high school, and I never got to go out with him. But anyway, so his name is Brad, of course, and um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so he's like this gorgeous guy who... Um, she falls in love with and they have sex for the first time and they have this relationship and then all of a sudden she finds herself with an unwanted pregnancy and after, eventually after <laughs> birth control pills. Right, right, right. After she's on, she, she was on birth control pills and she got pregnant. And yeah. so um, she decides that she's going to have an abortion. And I just explore in that book um, her process of, of how she came to that decision and um, who she talked to. But that's actually going to fall into one of the categories we're going to discuss. So I'm just going to say that I was considering writing another book having to do with men that I've dated. I was considering tying in body image to that. It, it just wasn't working for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm just putting that aside right now. And I've also decided, Lorraine mentioned she has um, self-published. All my books are self-published. And I just, I feel like if I, I, I need to really feel it in order to write it, especially if I'm a self-publisher because I don't have anybody helping me. Right. So um, I'm just, it's, it's not there right now. So eventually I'll come up with uh, a new idea for a book or I'll revisit that old one. But, um, you know, so... That's all of us. We, you can find all of my books on Amazon and you can get the paperbacks. We've got ebooks. It's, it's all available. Um, so with all that said, now that you know where to find our books and to support us women writers, <laughs> and you should, yeah. <laughs> let's start off. Oh. about the Virgin Diaries, if you'll let me. Sure. Okay. The one thing that you left out and the thing that I found the most interesting was one of the questions was, how old were you? And right. it was really interesting to me that we had, I think, what, she was 72 years old. Um, she was one of our oldest respondents. I think the oldest was a 77-year-old man. But she first had sex when she was not married, and she was 15. Yeah. So it dispelled the myth that grandma didn't have sex outside of marriage. And she also liked it, and that was an yes. another thing. So that was kind exactly. of interesting. So, yeah, it, I thought that was an interesting book, and I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of it was the ages of the of the people yeah. when they first had sex yes absolutely all right so let's go into this and i'm going to start with you lorraine um let's just go with the stories that have female leads are not women's stories um i wrote this on my facebook page the other day because my mom came up with this idea talking you know like what can we talk about on the show and it and occurred to me it's like well stephen king wrote misery but nobody, right. and that's, you know, a, a strong female lead. No one goes, oh, that's a woman's story. So right. have, you, have you encountered that, you know, being a female author, do you find that people assume that you're just writing books for women or what, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I think that's really common. And, I, you know, it, it actually really bothers me because it sort of covers the whole gamut of whether we can write about uh, you know, anything outside of our own realm. And and the presumption, it's kind of like privilege, right? It's like men don't even realize the privilege they have, that they can write a story about a woman and nobody questions it. And as you say, vice versa, uh, women are constantly categorized that way. And, and usually with a little bit of disparagement to it, right? It's like mm -hmm. oh, yeah. women's fiction, you know, there's quotes <laughs> around it. 
And, and it was funny because I, I remember back years ago when I was more involved in the, the film world, there was this whole thing about women's movies, right? Like I remember mm -hmm. when uh, uh, First Wives Club came out and then it was like, okay, now we've done that movie. We don't need to do it again. And yet men could tell the same story with different characters and different actors in a thousand different movies, but nobody said, well, we did our, you know, our man movie for the year. <laughs> right. We covered our men leaving their first wife movie for the, for the century, but women get categorized and it's like, once you get the chit, you're not allowed to carry on the way that men are. And, you know, I just find that really obnoxious, but what's interesting is I found it most bizarre when I wrote a book with a male protagonist, which was my second book, and it had nothing to do with anything to do with gender politics or or gender equality. It simply was the story that I wanted to tell. It was a story that was shared with me by a guy. Uh, it was his spark of a story that I took with and ran. So uh, the guy was the main protagonist. And I had a blast writing it. But boy, oh boy, I had so many people who were like, oh, you, you have a male lead? Well, oh, my God. You, how did you do that? You know, <laughs> and I was like, uh, because I'm a part of the world. <laughs> yeah. The human race. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, you know, they're half the human race. I have five brothers. I'm married to a man. I raised a man. I have male friends. I have <laughs> men constantly. <laughs> this was not hard, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was, it was absurd to me, and it was like, honest to God, that book, which I love and think is a fabulous book, has struggled to find its place in the marketplace because they couldn't put it in that category of women's fiction, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, God, what do we do? It's a woman writer, but it's not a female lead. So how, where does this go? You know? <laughs> and I thought, why do, we, why do we do that? You don't see that. Like you said, you don't see men's fiction being limited only to stories about men. You see yeah. men you see men's fiction doesn't even have the gender in front of the word fiction. It's just right. fiction. Right, right, exactly. And that's to me, uh, until that stops, until we stop saying women's fiction as a category, which I don't foresee that ever happening, mm -hmm. but until we do, it's always going to be be marginalized like that, which I think is really unfortunate because I don't think any author should limit themselves uh, in terms of any subject they want to write about or any mm -hmm. character they want to write about or any gender, any race, any, uh, you know, if they want to write about Martians, who knows about Martians, right? I mean, right. we're allowed to write science fiction, so why can't we write about men? Or, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very strange... Uh, limiting i think it's a very limiting factor well yeah marketing and you know i just i want to add that uh, i just listened to this fascinating podcast about uh the people who put together sex in the city and who wrote that show men right men right. wrote that show about women i mean they had a they had a woman's input i think uh i can't remember ah oh, her name is escaping me candace Bouchanel. Um, right. the, the, the Sex in the City series was based on her books, but it was with male writers. Or I, I'm sure there were other women who were writing, but those were, there were two lead male writers. And I mean, everybody just happily accepted and didn't go, right. you're writing for a woman. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> that, but that's the power of privilege, right? Yes. It's like, 
you don't even have to defend that when you're a man. It's yeah. just the way it is. And yeah. that's the part that's difficult for women because no one's asking for handouts or anything special. We're just saying parody. Just give us parody. Like <laughs> yeah. a few years ago, there was this whole thing about, uh, I don't know if you remember this, either of you, that it was like women were asking that publisher publishing companies only publish women for a year. Do you remember that? It was a big thing that started a couple of years ago. And I wrote a piece about it and I said, that's that's not what we want. We don't mm -hmm. want it to be just women. We want it to, to have parody. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. not, it's not about, because I love men and I love many books I've read by men. And so I, I don't want, and I also know very many wonderful male writers who are also struggling to break out in the marketplace. It's not like every man gets a ride in, but to me, it's not about that. It should just be about parody. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but that doesn't happen. So unfortunately, you know, we have to keep yelling about it. Yeah, well, you know, it seems like we have to keep yelling about just about everything. Um, yeah. Because there are so many things that, that are stacked against women that we have just come to... Accept. Oh, accept, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, crazy things. Just... You know, this, this this whole thing about, it's currently in the news about Trump and his tax returns, all right? And I know that, I used to have this roommate, and Kimberly, you know, Kimberly remembers her, Phyllis. Mm -hmm. And Phyllis came home one day, and she was just so angry. She had um, filled out a job application. And one of the questions on her job application was the date of her last period. What? <laughs> yeah. She refused to answer it. <clears throat> she got really angry, and she went and gave them what for. But, you know, I mean, they run credit checks on people and, you know, and want to know when the date of your last period, just to make sure you're not pregnant yeah. when they hire you. But, you know, we, the American people, who are going to put somebody into the highest office in the land and represent us in front of the world, are not allowed to see tax returns. And... Uh, I just, I, I just, I find it really interesting that, you know, and, 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 and all of his followers, they give him a pass. Oh, well, we don't have to see, you know, you don't care that he's a criminal. And, and so I, I just don't understand. Okay. He gets away with stuff, but you know, us people, people at the lower end of the ladder and especially women. Okay. We are asked questions and we can be denied things just on the basis of answers like the ones that she refused to answer about when was your last period and, it, and there was a time when it was it was fine to fire a woman because she was pregnant i mean okay. women have just been living under this for so many years i once left a job because they fired my boss and i'd worked under him and then the owner of the company came in and he asked me to train my new boss and i said well why can't i be the manager of the department he goes well George has a family. I said, well, I'm a single mother. It right. didn't make any difference. So I said, well, you know what? You can take this job and shove it, and you can train George yourself. And I walked out. <laughs> and a, lot of, a lot of people uh, would have been afraid to do that. I have never been afraid to do that, as Kimberly can attest. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, women just come up against all sorts of stuff that men never, ever, ever have to deal with. Yeah, and that that is the privilege, and it's it, it, you know I mean it's just this the same idea of privilege of black and white people. I mean, mm -hmm. 
people don't understand. They say, well, I'm white and I'm having a hard time. Well, the person who's black is having the same hard time has extra hard time because they're black. I mean, I was talking about this with Sarah Wood last week on the podcast, and it goes down to something so small as Band-Aids. You know, when you go to the grocery store to buy Band-Aids, they're made for people with white skin. and. Yeah. That is privilege. Um, but I, I want to kind of go back to this woman's stories thing because I think that I'm maybe a bit of an exception, although I, I'm i not sure. Being a self-published author, especially one who isn't promoting my book 24-7 online, which people don't really like anyway, um, I have found that surprisingly men like my books and I don't write for men. I, you know, when I wrote, well, the Virgin Diaries was for anybody. And actually that was for young people. It was for virgins because I figured, you know, when I was a teenager uh, and I hadn't had sex, I was so curious. What's it like? I did. I wasn't ready. And even when I was 10 years old, the first book I ever read was Forever by Judy Bloom, And that book was about two, you know, teenagers who had sex for the first time. And it, she was pretty detailed and I was fascinated by it. I didn't want to have sex, but I wanted to read about it and understand about it because it's everywhere you look. And so, um, you know, I, I wrote the Virgin or my mom and I got together to write the Virgin Diaries or to collect those stories so that young people would have a real sense of what to expect. Um, and so I think we got a fairly equal, at least it seemed to me, you know, equal amount men and women reading that book. But then when I wrote, and of course the book uh, Ain't No Sunshine, I thought, again, would be of interest to women. And it's more men who read the yes. book. And then and then The American Woman and Peyton's Choice, again, I got all these men. And I mean, I definitely got women who read and enjoyed the books, but there's this one guy, he's on my Facebook page. He's an older guy. I don't know exactly how old he is, 60s, 70s, I don't know. But he reads my books and gives them great reviews and he's he's fantastic. And it just blows my mind that this this man who's in his 60s or 70s wants to read about a teenage girl going through, uh, you know, abortion. But but if, if you really think about it, why would that be a big issue? I mean, okay, this is a, Peyton's Choice is young adult. So I think that takes me into the like, why does a man necessarily, or even adult woman, why would they be interested in young adult? I guess, you know, some like it and some don't. Um, but it's just funny to me that a man would be interested in that. But it really shouldn't be because it's a human story. Just because it's a woman doesn't make it less interesting. And it's like Sex in the City is a, 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 like an example because that was one show that kind of crossed over. Men watched it, but men watched it not because they thought, oh, this is just going to be a fun show and I'm going to have fun and laugh. They wanted to get the behind the scenes pictures. It's like my boyfriend, Bob. That's why he watched it. And, and he found out, wow, women talk like that? <laughs> they really say those things? And, you know, I can verify since I've seen Sex and the City about a thousand times per episode. Um, <laughs> yes, we do talk that way. And um, But it's like, you know, and Bob is pretty, he's a feminist. And I, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily just watch something because it's men or women. He, you know, but he, he wanted to get the behind the scenes story. But I think I've been kind of fortunate in that I haven't dealt with too much of the assumption or at least I don't know that I have because I don't know who's scrolling on Amazon and deciding against or, you know, to buy it or against buying it. I don't know if the decision not to buy it is, oh, that's just a woman's story. I don't know. But I think overall I've been fortunate. But, you know, you can look at J.K. Rowling. She had to make her name J.K. Rowling so nobody would know she was a woman. 
Right. It's just ridiculous. I just think that's so embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. Well, it's not the first time that something like that has happened either. I cannot remember the other authors, but there have been a lot of women authors. Right. Initials. Yeah. And also, I think that it's uh, not so much the people out in the world who, you know, the readers out in the world who categorize and limit things that way. I think it's the publishing companies, it's the marketing companies, it's the media. Yeah. Force these things, force these things into these boxes that I think over time have created barriers to people reaching over the wall to pick a book that, you know, I read a book the other day that was such a man book. I mean, it was violent. (laughs) It was about war. It was about, it was, it was, it was really a man's book. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was incredibly well written. It went deeper. It, you know, it wasn't just shoot 'em up, bang bang. It was it was about the the sort of an existential perspective of a man who's a contract killer. And it was really fascinating. And there were a couple of women in it, but it was largely men. And I thought, see, a woman wouldn't normally be attracted to that book because of the way it's marketed. But mm-hmm. That's what that's how it happens with women's books too. Is that if they're marketed in a very uh, woman-centric way, men don't pick them up. And I had so many men who read my first book, which was very female-oriented, who who were impressed and thrilled by it. One man said, "I feel like I've learned so many things about women reading this book." But he probably wouldn't have been attracted to buy it if he hadn't been my friend. You know, if you hadn't mm-hmm. been some do because you keep getting categorized and, and and that's what I object to. I yeah I understand that they have to do it for marketing reasons, but I, I would like to see it be more expansive and more inclusive and not uh, yeah. I agree. And it really it really is it, it's become a knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the general public and and because because of the kind of marketing. Because I know myself the first book, oh I even forgot to mention that one. Um <laughs> Yeah, the people next door. That's also on Amazon. Yeah, the people next door. All right, which I recently published the 20th anniversary edition. But I remember when I first uh, wrote this book, and that was back. I guess I it was, it was in the 90s, in 2000, I think. Um, my nephew, and he goes, "Oh, it's a chick book." It's <laughs> like, no, it was a science fiction book, and yeah, the protagonist was a woman. Okay, but it wasn't really a chick book. And I had a very strong male character who kind of rode in to the rescue um, from, you know, from the future. And, um, you know, but it wasn't a chick book. But that was his, that was his thing. Oh, it's a chick book. Yeah, it was just because there's, there's a woman lead and a yeah. woman author. And, there, and you just automatically dismiss it, which is really, again, embarrassing. It's embarrassing to me that our culture, in, you know, in, in the 21st century, that we're still dealing with something like this. I mean, it's, you know, I guess we should just be thankful that we're allowed to write. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm such a bitch. Okay, you know what I want to ask, um, Lorraine? I know that you're you're talking about this book that you, the al- it's The Alchemy, what's, what's the name? The Alchemy of noise the alchemy of noise which i read and it's really good i want you to talk about yeah i want you to talk about um just how your characters i mean you you touched on it a little bit but the characters um offer social like how do you offer social comedy commentary within your fiction writing okay that's a good question um with this book in particular because i think i i feel like um Somebody said to me once that the purpose of fiction is to entertain. You read it to enjoy. And I mm-hmm. said, 
I think the purpose of fiction is far more expansive than that. It certainly has been for me as a reader. I want to be I want to be entertained by a great story. I think that's the first mandate any fiction writer has. But for me personally, I want to imbue my story with some underlying theme or message that is either illuminating or provocative or uh, perspective changing in some way. But it, you know, of course, it has to be incorporated in the story in an entertaining way. I'm not about proselytizing some perspective. It's got to be a part of the narrative. But with this particular story, it was even more uh, the theme of the story because it generated from back in the 80s, I was very immersed in the music scene in Los Angeles and I was in a relationship with a man of color. We lived together for six years. And whatever I thought I knew about race and uh, bias in America, I was quickly disabused of my naivety. I had been lucky to be raised by very open-minded liberal parents but there was something about being in the day-to-day -day proximity of a black man in America that I saw, I witnessed and tangentially experienced things that I, I it just, to be honest with you, it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. It got to the point that I thought, oh my God, we, we are so not where I thought we were. Um, whether it was police harassment or landlords that, that didn't want to rent to us or restaurant people that didn't want to seat us or people w would walk by and say horrible things or women would lock their car doors as we walked past. These are things that I actually saw and witnessed, the things that we see every day in the news, you know, people being thrown down the stairs when they're moving into their apartment because uh, a neighbor called and said they were breaking in. Well, I actually, that actually happened to the man I was involved with. Oh my with. God. It incorporated in my book. And anyway, I, that whole period was so shocking to my, existential equilibrium that I knew someday I would write about it. And then fast forward a couple of decades, that relationship has, has been over for many, many years. But when I started writing for HuffPost, I was covering a lot of stories that had to do with race and uh, the things that were going on, whether it was Obama's election or Trayvon Martin or Ferguson, all these things. And I was writing a lot about them, which of course gave me access to a lot of readers who weighed in, whether they weighed in in comments or social media or through email. Um, I heard a lot of voices on the topic. And so I started incorporating some of my perspective of what I had witnessed and experienced. And, and after doing this three-part interview series with uh, a woman who I got to know, a name named Gina McRae, who's a BLM activist and a very tough New York chick who illuminated me greatly on being an ally and being uh, a part of this narrative-changing movement, I decided it was time to write my story. And so I... I pulled together all that information. I, I created completely fictional characters, brought it in contemporary times, threw it in Chicago, and I let these characters fall in love and find their equilibrium, and then I burdened them with all the things that I had experienced and witnessed and gave them the task of, of trying to survive it. And the thing about the social, the, the social statement is that one of the things that I really learned, and, and, and I wrote an article about it with a very on-the-nose title called No White People Will Never Understand the Black Experience, mm -hmm. is because I think that is true. I think that we can be allies and we can be in the fight, but no white person will ever understand what you were talking about earlier, Kimberly, or what I'm talking about now, that day-to-day into a room and the first thing anybody notices about you is that you're black. We don't know what that's like. We, we, we will never experience that. 
And the closest we get to that is proximity. So part of what I wanted to do with this book, and it sounds a little grand and I don't mean it to, but I wanted to say to my white brethren, okay, you hear a lot about this experience from black people, but I want you to hear about it from a member of your own demographic. Mm-hmm. What what I witnessed and saw and, and was impacted by as a white woman involved with a black man. And, and hopefully, alter some viewpoints, you know, hopefully, up, you know, illuminate some th- things that people aren't clear about. And for my black readers, I want them to feel that they've been honestly reflected, because I think this conversation is tough to have when, when we're not listening to each other, and we're mm-hmm. not taking into account that we cannot have experiences, we have to pay, pay attention in a different kind of way, because we don't know. And so that's really what that's really the social message that's imbued in in these characters and in this particular book. That that's a that's fascinating because you know what brought what I thought of, and I hate to say this, I I, I hesitate, but it's it's like the Cosby Show. I mean, obviously he's a rapist and all of that, but prior to us finding out that Bill Cosby was a rapist, um, the Cosby Show served. Uh, to show America and the world that, um, you know, I mean, th- there's a black experience. And the, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that they didn't necessarily touch on on that show where they experienced discrimination. But what they did touch on was, hey, we're just like everybody else. And right. so America had the opportunity to fall in love with a family that just happened to be black. But again, they were funny and, you know, they had arguments and, and all of that and just normalized. And right. it, it, it's sad that that would even have to happen. And I, I, I will always appreciate that show, even though I have such strong feelings about the man right now. I mean, I, I feel so betrayed by him, but as as everybody feels betrayed by him. But, um, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of in line with what you're talking about, because when you can read a story and when you can fall in love with characters, it's a different experience than being online or, you know, having a... It's one thing, I think, to be in person, because when you're in person and you're talking with somebody who's had those experiences and they're sharing with you, it might touch you a little bit more deeply than it would online. But when you get to read a story and when you get intimately involved with the characters, um, I do think that it will open up your mind and it will make you understand in a way that is different from any other way. I totally agree. In fact, I I actually think that's a really important point because... um, it's been documented that fiction, because of the way that it taps into your emotional centers and your your heart and feeling centers, it 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 impacts differently. It sticks with you longer than, say, mm-hmm. if you read a nonfiction book about you know race or being a white person with a black person. I think I think fiction lets you get so involved and invested on an emotional level that it hits you differently. And yeah. I think that's a real powerful tool of fiction. And um, I think. For me, in writing this book, that was really my goal. Is of course, I want to tell a great. I call it a socio-political love story because it is a love story, and that you know, it's it's not a um, a dirge. It's a story that you know you are going to get involved with the characters, and I've been very excited that um, through the Instagram campaign that's happening right now, and I'm reading reviews from some of these readers on Instagram. They're getting that. They've been mm-hmm. very moved by the story and by the characters and by what they're going through. And that's really what I want to happen. I want whatever learning or whatever illumination to come out of it, to come out of that very human story. Right. Um, and I hope that happens with it. 
Well, so Anne, what about you? As far as writing the melt, um, what is your social commentary? Does it have to do with the um, individual characters, or is it the ov- overall storyline? I think it's the it. It really is the overall storyline. Um, you know, I'm like a seat of my pants kind of a, a writer, and I just came up with the idea of what would happen if this virus was, you know, released on the world. And then I just took it from there. Um, And like I was saying before, the first half of the book really deals with these two particular characters, uh, Rena and Ethan Hampton, and how they have weathered this storm and and all the horrible things that transpired in the destruction of humankind. Um, But then it goes on into this, this community. And I have selected characters um, I've, I've got, it's mostly white people, but um, there is a black couple. There is a, um, a marriage between a man and um, a, a Japanese woman. Uh, and then they have kids. So, of course, they are mixed race kids. Um, I've introduced a couple of new characters. I'm bringing in overtones of um, religion, uh, the inherent racism that that just lurks just below the surface of us all, um, fear, and all of those sorts of things. But you know, I'm again, I'm trying to you know, I'm doing it in an entertaining way, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> as much as you can be entertained. By it, but you can be because I yeah. read like that all the time. Uh, but you know, there's an underlying. You know, I'm. I'm not preachy, okay, but what I want to do is get this underlying message in the book that you, you know, even if there's only like less than 40 people, um, you can still fall prey to these, uh, to, to the sorts of things that, that divide people, mm-hmm. even when you need everybody in your corner. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what I'm doing in my current book. And it's, um, it, it, it's really kind of hard sometimes, you know, it, because I think of it and I, we'd all like to think that we would learn from our mistakes, but, but really truthfully, you know, there are some people that have such ingrained notion, uh, notions that, um, they will bring them along. I mean, we see it every day right now. Okay. There are these, there are people that, that, you can put the truth right in front of them and they will not believe it. And they will tell you, well, you're wrong. You know, you're, you've got a right. I've just had this told you have a right to your opinion, but you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. All right. And so, you know, I mean, that's the thing that I'm addressing in, in my current book, the melt, uh, that I'm, I'm now writing, um, in, in my other books, what I really tried to do was, show that you really don't need anybody else to come in and save you. And, you know, it's, it's always nice to have somebody to come and swoop down and, and, and save the day. But in the end, and this is something that I have always kind of internalized, and I guess it's just because of the, uh, of, of the things that have happened to me in my life, that there really is no such thing in this world as security. And the only security that anyone has is contained within themselves. Because in the end, okay, we all have to fight our own battles. And it's really great if we get some help. But sometimes there is no help. 
Sometimes that help is taken away from you, and the only thing that you have to rely on is yourself. And that's what I try to do with my characters. And, and of course, you know, most of my protagonists are women. Uh, uh, but, you know, in, 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 in that one book, Cooper's Grove, where I have the, the woman writer and then the career criminal who's so creepy, I mean, she's face-to-face -face with this guy finally. And, you know, who's going to win this battle? Mm -hmm. Because it really is. I mean, somebody is going to die. And she has to reach down inside of herself to see if she can save herself. Are you talking and about dreams and nightmares? Yes. Yeah, okay, you said Cooper's Grove. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, dreams and nightmares, yeah. Little, uh, whatever, I'm 72. I just turned 72. So <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean... The, the message I, I, I try to impart, no matter who it is, okay, is inner strength, okay, yeah. whether it's the inner strength of a man, okay, which, which was in Cooper's Grove, um, but it's always, it's always the inner strength of women because so many times women are portrayed as weak mm -hmm. and women are portrayed as soft. And I've known a lot of women that were anything but soft. That's not to say because I'm not soft, okay? That's not to say that they aren't loving. It's not to say that they, um, they, that, that they can't uh, look at somebody else and, and have empathy, um, but they're not mushy. They're yeah. not... Yeah, they're not soft. Yeah, they're not soft. They're not so as malleable as, as some people would have us believe. And, and that's, that's the thing that I always try to impart in, 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 in my writing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Women are emotional, uh, but so are men. Men just hide it better, as you know, we were talking about in, in, in the Virgin Diaries. But being emotional doesn't necessarily have to be a minus. Okay. Because you can take those emotions and you can use them and you can use them to strengthen yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing about toxic masculinity. Part of the issue of toxic mas masculinity is men are expected to keep their emotions um, pushed down so far that it causes them to feel anger or upset, and that can lead to violent action or abusive action. So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely emotions. We all have emotions. It's, well, ridic it's ridiculous to think we, we don't. And the follow-up in dreams and uh, – not in dreams and nightmares in um, Ain't No Sunshine, men reveal mm -hmm. the heart of uh, the, you know, the pain of heartbreak. At the end of the book, what we did was we tied it in and cause we didn't really have any commentary in the book until the very end, but we tied, um, the, the, the men, okay. To, you know, the, the whole thing of suck it up, suck it up, uh, to the football players, the thing that's in the news now about these terrible brain injuries mm -hmm. and the diseases that it causes, you know, later on in life, uh, to these NFL players. Um, you know, they, they, they would just suck it up. They would have these terrible head injuries, but suck it up and get back in the game. And then mm -hmm. they literally paid for, pay for it with a shortened life and, and certainly uh, a, a very impacted quality of life yeah. later on because of, because of those. So it's, it, it, it's just a thing that, you know, you can use your emotions to make yourself strong and yeah. it does, it's not a shot it's not necessarily a sign of weakness sometimes yeah. getting your emotions out is actually a sign of strength because you get rid of all that and it helps you think straight but when when you when you gobble them all up it um 
can yeah. make you really ill. Yeah. And and I'll just I'll go on about Peyton's choice that um you know the the teenage girl who is in a relationship first what I do is I focus on their relationship um for anybody out there interested in reading it you don't get the abortion part immediately so don't expect that <laughs> um it's what a you story. yeah you get the story of Peyton who happens to be a uh, she's I, she gets a scholarship scholarship to UCLA. She's very smart. And I actually said it in Torrance, California, and used my own life experiences for when my mom and I lived in Torrance and I was in high school and I had a group of girlfriends. I never uh, got pregnant or had to deal with an abortion, but I said it in um, Torrance is a beach town. And so it was three girls and they or four girls, I should say, we were all best friends. And so um that was who I kind of based my story on. And then Peyton meets this guy. She's a little bit of a, bl- a late bloomer in a way like me. Um, as not, not, I'm not talking about, you know, I mean, I, I was tall at 13. I think I was like 5'11 or something. But I mean, I was a late bloomer with boys because I was so tall. And boys didn't know what to do with me. If they thought I was pretty, I was taller than them. I wore glasses. I was kind of a geek for a while. And then I became pretty and nobody knew what the hell to think about me. And um, so I kind of made Peyton along those same lines. She's just a lot smarter, <laughs> at least in school. And um, so she meets Brad and Brad's this gorgeous guy. He's tall and he's a little older than her. And, you know, they're enamored of each other. And so they start this relationship. And then slowly but surely, as they become comfortable with each other, he says things to her that aren't so nice. And it's not that Brad is a bad guy. He's a good guy. But sometimes he has sexist views or sometimes he says something dismissive or he questions her about something that she might do that he does. And initially in the book, she's not knowing how to deal with that because she so wants to keep him. She doesn't want to lose him. And I I base that from my own experiences where there were, you know, I mean, my very first boyfriend told me um, and I was not fat. But he said he was very thin and he said something like, when we have a baby, it's going to be beautiful because it's going to have my thinness and your fatness. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Okay, thanks. Oh, Bill, Bill. <laughs> Poor Bill. But um, yeah, so and I, you know, I mean, I, I was so enamored of him at the time and I didn't want to lose him. And so I would let little things like that slide. So in the beginning of the book, that's kind of something that I I did my social commentary was how Peyton would digest those comments and how she would um, figure out how to deal with them at a later point. And then obviously when she did become pregnant and she was facing, um, you know, a decision, I think my social commentary was very bold because I, I came across from a pro-choice advantage, I mean, a uh, vantage point. And, you know, I incorporated people who stood outside of clinics and, 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 you know, held up pictures of what they call fetus porn. And, you know, her, I also had conversations with her friends and other people where she wasn't sure, you know, she was sure that she wanted an abortion, but she wasn't sure um, in the general sense. I think she needed to feel like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. And so I, I did try to come from also, you know, the point of view that they, there are all these um, clinics out there that lie to women. I can't remember their official name, and of course I used it in the book, but there are these uh, certain kind of yeah. clinics that tell women that abortion causes cancer, and mm. they say all, all of these uh, lies so that 
young women who don't know any better will choose to have the child that they don't really want to have. And so um, it's interesting because on Amazon, a woman commented, you know, she, she gave a review and she said something along the lines of, no, that's not true. And I, I do think I followed up with an article um, that proved her wrong. I remember saying that was a pregnancy crisis center. Yeah, there you go. Pregnancy crisis centers. That's what they're called. So, um, so yeah, the, I mean, the the other books that I, I wrote were not fiction. Um, I would say an American woman that was all about social commentary. So the whole book was social commentary. It was, it, you know, I, mean, I certainly provided uh, background on the women's rights movement, on Alice Paul, who wrote the 19th Amendment, Women's Right to Vote, as well as the Equal Rights Amendment, which still has not passed. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that was just all commentary, whether it was uh, feminism, my brand of feminism. And I say that because I think we all have our own individual brands, even though the, the main brand is just social and legal uh, equality between the sexes. So um, that's pretty much where I came from. And I think that it's awesome when people incorporate some kind of, I mean, I think almost everyone does, even yeah. if they're not intending yeah. to do it, because you're writing about the world, and you're going to have a perspective. So there's going to be yes. a certain commentary there. Um, but this is going to lead me into the fact that we're all political writers. And um, I think we're going to end on this because we're already in an hour. Oh, my God. Um <laughs> Um, but one of the things that Lorraine had mentioned to me, you know, prior to this podcast about things that we can talk are, um, how women are judged very differently, uh, when they're writing, they're, they're critiqued on their looks and, um, you know, they, they hit below the belt. So Lorraine, why don't you go and tell us about your experiences there? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I, it, I was actually thinking about this yesterday, that now with Donald Trump in office, he he, he is so vile in mm-hmm. his trolling of everyone that he kind of he kind of blows this theory up because he goes after men the same way he goes after women. Yes. But other than Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, in the world that I have lived in, I have been sort of shocked by both men and women, mm-hmm. sadly, this is not just men, yeah. both men and women who, when they don't agree with your viewpoint, oh yeah, they'll come after you in ways that are really below the belt. I mean, I've had people uh, who disagreed with a stance I took on an article in HuffPost literally research my resume, you know, they went online and they'll write these comments about, oh, she's kind of fat, no, she lives in Playa del Rey, so she's rich, so she doesn't understand, which I'm not. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't understand, or she's, oh, she's self-published. Or, but I mean, the most hideous kind of mean girl, um, mean guy, sort of, I'm going to tear you down. I'm going to tell you that your your hair looks stupid and these pictures are ugly and you aren't successful and you're not famous. And, and it's done in this really hateful way that I don't see, other than Donald Trump, I don't see people do that to men in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll argue their points. They'll attack them for their points, but, but they won't attack them for their body or their face or their resume or their you know, their name even. I mean, it's 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 really a vicious thing that I think not just women writers, but women, you know, everywhere put mm-hmm. up being attacked. I mean, here's a funny, quick, funny story that has nothing to do with writing, but I was standing in a store. This was a few years ago. I was standing in like a store where you get phones. I can't remember what it was. This was years ago. And a woman was, I was the only other woman in the store. There was a woman at the counter. She was in a big hissy fitting fight with the guy behind the counter about her bill. 
And she was carrying on. It was getting really, really vicious. And I was just standing there quietly thinking, oh, for God's sake, wasn't saying a word, wanted to get on with it. All of a sudden, she looked at me and she said, what are you looking at? You know, you're really ugly. Oh, my God. And I'm not joking. That happened. And and it was like, to me, it was exactly illustrates this point that if a guy had been standing there, I doubt she would have said that. But it was like, I think she was embarrassed because she was making a fool of herself. And she just didn't like that I was standing there, even though I wasn't saying a word. And so the first thing she went with was, you're ugly. And um, I think that that's something that's very particular to the way women are attacked in the world. And now that we're online... And people see our pictures and they see our websites and they see our work. Um, we're all the more vulnerable to giving them many, many, many different avenues of attack if they choose to do so. And but, you know, if you want to if you want to be successful in the world, you kind of got to be out there. And so you're mm-hmm. always positioning yourself to be to have ad hominem attacks come at you in very personal ways. And you just have to develop this incredibly thick skin that's and I'm, that's not to say that men don't also get attacked they really do but it's very different like i said i've seen it that they get attacked for their viewpoint they get attacked for what they said they don't mm-hmm. get attacked for how big their butt is or right. you know, whether yeah. they, whether they have high cheekbones you know so <laughs> that, you know i think that that's endemic to being a woman and um but you know, I'll, I'll hand it to him. I think Donald Trump is kind of breaking down the gender wall. Yeah, yeah that's true. He's an equal opportunity bully. Exactly. <laughs> Adam Schiff's neck and Jerry. <laughs> so I think he's and Marco kind of, Rubio's small hands. He's breaking the glass ceiling on that and showing men a new way. Yeah. Uh, what What do you hear, Anne? Well, I think one of my favorite things was, and this had nothing to do with writing, but. I can't remember what it was about, but it, it was something that, you know, people were doing videos and then putting them up and it was, I can't remember what it was about, but I made this video and I did it and, and some guy from the right on Twitter, he, he, he came up and he made a little meme of me oh and the guy from Lost in, that old man from Lost in Space mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> saying how much I looked like him. Oh my God. Know, it, okay, I did. Okay, <laughs> picture. All right, and it's like you know he was attacking me on my looks. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've had other people um, attack me because of my age, ageism. Um, yeah. They think it's going to hurt my feelings, but it doesn't because you know I am what I am, and I I look at that and I think well you know you you must be really insecure if if the biggest thing that you have to say about me, instead of attacking what I had to say, all right, you're attacking the way I look, you're mm-hmm. attacking the fact right. that, of, you know, that I'm old, um, and I'm not old, I'm older. Um, <laughs> I figure I won't be old till I'm like 85. But <laughs> that's what they, do. They, they They go after you on all these surface things. They, I don't even think they bother sometimes to even even glance at what you had to say. Um, you know, yeah, maybe they just pick like the headline or a, a, the first line of what you're saying. They hate you. Mm-hmm. And so instead of attacking you on what you had to say, they attack you on how you look. 
Um, and, you know, oh, you know, there you are, a self-published author that nobody ever heard of and nobody ever reads. And that's not true. People have read my books. I've gotten, I mean, yes, I wish that more people have read my books, but, you know, people have read my books and given me great reviews, except for the one review, my favorite <laughs> review, uh, that was a one star. Um, and it was about dreams and nightmares. Um, and it was about how, uh, my, my, my really nasty character was a potty mouth, which that was just hysterical. And so I've taken that review and copied it. And every once in a while I post it in order to sell that book and it does sell books. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, um, you know, I looked at that review and it was written by a woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Because well, she, she just didn't, she just didn't like the language. She didn't really have anything negative to say about your book other than the language. Attacking me. Okay, so I can't say that I've ever really been attacked by women for my writing. I have, though, been attacked by women for my uh, for my support of certain characters. Um, I was called the C-word in the last election by both Bernie and Hillary uh, supporters. So you know, what can I say? and that was and th and that was always by women. And, and I found that really interesting that women um, would come and, and call me a name like that just because I did not agree with their take on a particular candidate or situation. Right. So yeah, I think it's, it's kind of toxic that you have women attacking each other. Well, that's um, patriarchy. I mean, that's just pa yeah, that's that's people who are ways. Yeah, uh, you think you would think that that women would 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 see through that sort of behavior. But they don't because, yeah because it, it's just ingrained and it is the patriarchy. Well, and I they, mean, it, go, it goes to the idea that when you have a, when you have a rape in a small town by the college football star, and they meet, take up the college football star. Yeah. And if, if the girl dares to report the rape, then she's a slut and she's ruining his life and nobody cares about her life. And I think that well, that's, that's like, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, what's his usual Kavanaugh, his life was ruined. Now yeah. sitting in the Supreme court and she still has, has not gone back to work right. because she can't. Yeah, her whole family has had to go into hiding. I would say as far as the, the kind, I mean, I I get attacked. Um, oh, I just want to add before I talk about myself, all the time I see Alyssa Milano is uh, being called out for being a has-been. Oh, you're just looking for attention. And it was funny because the other day she tweeted out to yes, everybody, yeah, everybody who, um, you know, says that she's a has-been or whatever she listed all of her accomplishments she did a whole thread on the things that she's actively working on now television shows she's starting a podcast she's got some kind of clothing line um i mean she's just she's very busy and obviously she's an activist that's speaking for everybody but um as far as what i i mean i get oddly enough I haven't been getting so much hate lately, and I don't know what the deal is. But when I have gotten hate, I uh, I was called on Thanksgiving Day by a man who voted for Obama. I know this because someone told me after he called me an N lover and spelled ah. it out. He posted that on my Facebook page. Mm. And, um, wow. you know, and then I also was told that I should move to an urban city so that I could be raped by monkeys, which was code for African-Americans. Um, you know, and I've also, somebody said to me something about how, oh, I, th I know, I was, I was tweeting on, tweeting about Me Too, and I said something like, you know, men don't get to define the parameters of Me Too. And, and so a man came on and, and said that 
a woman of my age suggesting that I was older should not be, you know, um, talking about such things and that he didn't want to have sex with me. And it's like, first of all, I don't care oh, if you don't want to have sex. I don't want to have sex with you either. Why would they even think that that matters? But whatever. Oh, and, um, you know, and it's like, so I, I've had I've had all kinds of who do you think you are? Um, right. Or they, you know, I, I, I hate the whole, especially in 2016 with the whole Bernie and Hillary thing. Um, both my mom and I were supporters of Bernie Sanders early on, and then we both supported Hillary, and now we both feel the same way. We're not as in love with him as we were. In fact, not at all. Um, but but both of us have had that experience of, of you know, I, I was the Bernie supporter. I will say I wasn't ever called the C word by anybody in Hillary's camp. What I got from people in Hillary's camp was the con- being condescending. They were very, very condescending. What I And, and then when I... Um, when I switched over, um, when she became the nominee, and I was all in for her, and I supported her with everything I had, um, that's when I started getting called the C-word by Bernie supporters, and they were just so mean and vicious, and it was, you know, I would say, look, I supported him in the general, and they would, they would accuse me of lying, and it's like, well, then I would point them to my Huffington Post article that said why this feminist is supporting Bernie Sanders, you know, it's like, hello, but I mean, it's true when you're, I mean, as, as Lorraine said, Men also get attacked. Men also have to deal with all kinds of viciousness. But there's a, you know, I mean, my boyfriend, Bob, is a political writer, Bob Seska, and he's very opinionated. He never gets the vitriol that I do or right. that, you know, Alyssa Milano uh-huh. gets or, or that you guys have described. He never gets it. Um, I know chicks. In fact, chicks on the right at, uh-huh. went after him once, which I cannot stand. They, they've been after me several times. But. The only thing they could do to insult him was call him Bobby McChesthair because he was wearing like a V-neck T-shirt in one of his pictures. And I mean, he doesn't have a lot of chest hair, but he has it. And it was like, that's the that was the worst thing that they could come up with for him. Bobby McChesthair. So it's like, you know, I mean, they they call women the most horrid names I've ever heard, like, you know, hideous sea hag and whatever. I don't know. They're just awful. But it's like, so for a man, they come up with Bobby McChest hair. Uh-huh. I was just like, that's all you got for him? Yeah. Not <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, they're not. They think they are, but they're not. Oh, well. Well, this has really been an interesting conversation. And I'm so grateful that both of you took the time out of your day to share your stories and your books and um, I hope that everybody listening will uh, go to Amazon and look up all of us and buy our books and give us reviews. Because one thing that I want to say, very, very important, authors need reviews. Yes, so if you yes. read if you read a book and you like it, review it. And you know what? The only time I ever give a bad review, which I don't even think I have, but the only time I would is if a book was just so awful that right. I just, I couldn't. I don't, but, I don't give bad reviews. Um, I only review books that I enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I think just it's important to, to realize yeah. that it's not easy being an author. And even if you're fortunate enough to get a publisher, um, you need to have good reviews so that your publisher will give you another book deal and so that you can, you know, make money from it when someone is looking for a book and they're reading through the reviews. If you only have a few or, you know, especially if you're somebody in politics, um, I've, I've, I've been fortunate that I haven't really been attacked too much, especially for Peyton's Choice. Um, but you know, there have been some people who disagree with me and they go and write a negative review. So the positive reviews really make a difference. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, thank you both for, for joining me. Why don't you, uh, why don't you, uh, 
do the, well, I'll do it. You can find our books at arcstories.com. That's A-R-K-stories.com. How about you, Lorraine? Yeah, where are just, you? Just go to my website. I mean, it's it's all on Amazon and stuff. But if you go to my website, which is just my name, LorraineDevonWilkie.com, you'll find links to everything there. Okay, or, and I'm going to be putting um, all of our information in the uh, Patreon description so you can find all of the Twitter handles and all of that there. So once again, thank you, ladies. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And Anne, it was nice to meet you online. And Kimberly, I always appreciate our interactions. So Me too. let's continue. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.